would say something like this about Christianity. They would say, I don't want to buy into something which explicitly excludes Christian critical rationality and requires me to just shut my eyes and step out in faith. And some of you will relate to that statement. Some of you will be fearful at some level of Christianity and the apparent call upon those who are considering Christianity to shut their eyes and to step out and say, you know, I don't see this. Nice and quotes. Quotes are always fun. Here we go from Richard Dawkins. He's always a good source of quotes, I think. This is what he said. He said, faith is a process of non-thinking. Or of believing because you have been told. And because of this, I quote, and this is him playing straight to the point, he doesn't move around the bush like some of us, that's able communicators. Original audience says this, religious beliefs are irrational. Religious beliefs are dumb and dumb. And in case you didn't get the point, you missed off super dumb. <laughs> so, no lie. I've got to say, um, I think it's I most of us can agree that there is ample evidence of Professor Dawkins and, and others who hold the same opinion to draw the conclusions they do. You only have to spend a little bit of time on YouTube. There's a video I particularly love on YouTube, which is the explanation of God from a banana and how it fits in your hand perfectly and points towards your mouth, which is a little problematic. I don't think my banana's getting pointing away. I'm not sure that's like a, a refutation of the instance of God. But I can get that people have issues and questions about spirituality and love to play off religion versus rationality. But uh, here is what I'm hoping to do. If, today I'm not going to try to show you that the mind has a place in Christian life. I, I mean, that's actually quite easy. Uh, I think it's been done time and time again. I'll go a little bit further. But what I want to do is show you not only that belief in Jesus Christ is itself reasonable in the full sense of that word, but also that it actually offers the fullest and best possible foundation for the life of the mind. And everything that comes from it, including a couple of to science and art, which are two things that I just allow. And I want to be a little bit controversial. If you are someone who is going to think, and you're at university, so I take it that some of you are trying to do this along the way, then you best do it as a Christian. If you're someone who's going to think, then you're best to do it as a Christian. Now, I I take it this is going to take some doing, and uh, I don't anticipate all of you to leave persuaded here today. Um, (laughs) But let's get started. Now, I want to begin by reading a section. Uh, from one of the Apostle Paul's famous letters to the church, and I've placed it in modern day Turkey called Corinth. Uh, it's one of the earlier texts from the Bible, not, not the earliest, it's earlier than the Gospels, but it's still quite an early text. And this is what Paul writes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read it out to you. He says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to clarify for you the Gospel that I proclaimed for you. You received it and are taking a stand on it. You're also saved by it if you hold to the message I proclaim to you unless you believe to no purpose. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received. You see what Paul's about to talk about now? This is kind of an introduction to a discussion of the very heart of the message, or what we call the gospel, of Jesus Christ. And the content of this message is so significant, says Paul, 
it's so significant that it is the means of salvation, he says. Uh, or from what or, or how, we don't yet know. Here's how he continues. Now listen carefully to these words. Whether you believe it or not, it's important to understand the claims that he's making. He says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that he appeared to keep us then to the twelve, that he appeared to over five hundred brothers and sisters of one kind, most of whom remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep by his died. Uh, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one abnormally born, he appeared also to me. Now just so we can't get ourselves all on the same page, what's he saying? Well the content of this saving message that Paul is passing on, that he received too, is that Jesus, according to expectations, has been set long beforehand in the Jewish scriptures of the Old Testament. He died, he was buried, and then he was a really important bit. Because lots of people died and were buried. The important bit is that three days later, the claim is made that he rose from the dead. Now you know it's important for two things. There are two reasons why it's an important claim. Uh, Firstly, there's actually very little significance in the death or the burial uh, of a poor, homeless, travelling preacher who never held any political office, never led an army, never rose to great power, who never travelled more than a couple of hundred kilometres from his home. But there's a great deal of significance in anyone, whoever they might be, in rising from the dead. Because it means regardless of how important they might be, the claim is that they hold some kind of secret, a secret to the defeat of death. And the second thing is that Paul takes some time to sketch out some of the witnesses to this claim for resurrection. Now you may or may not agree with this claim. Let's make that obvious. You may not agree with this claim. And the fact that I'm talking about it all to you right now might in fact suggest to you that I've actually left behind the life of mind and critical rationality some time ago. Here's what I'm asking you to do. Hold on for a moment. Just hold on for a couple of minutes and let's see where we can go with this first. Let's see if it takes us somewhere surprising. And what I want you to do is I want you to hold that judgment just for a moment and to think of what it would be about three things. Three things to do with thinking, to do with the life of the mind to do with critical rationality. And here's the first thing. The first thing to notice is that the whole Christian message, the whole of the truth of Christianity rests on a historical claim which you are invited to come and investigate. And I take it that this is a novel and extraordinary thing. It's like saying that someone had a dream a divine visitation which is inaccessible to our minds. Instead, you're invited to come and test the waters yourself. Now, uh, one, of the most one of the most famous stories in the Bible is about a guy called Thomas. Uh, who knew, there's a nickname for him, he's not There's an additional word stuck in front of his name. Anyone remember what it is? Anyone know? Yeah. Doubting Thomas. Now, uh, Doubting Thomas is a, well, he's a original sceptic, I guess, uh, and you may or may not have heard him, uh, but most of us know of someone who has the ability to shut down a dinner conversation. You, you, you may be that person. You just have this endless stock of one-liners. 
which can turn our buzzing hip vibe into a great side of conversation. Now, my daughter is looking like this. So her name's Susanna, and she's four years old. I can tell somebody about her now. When she's 13, she'll probably kill me. So I want to use the media as I can right now. <laughs> about a year ago, we were sitting on Stanmore Station. I'm a city boy, but the coffee buns are and sweet. I'm looking for the club and rock warming, bringing the Eastern Toilet Beaches a little closer. But we're sitting on the beach, and this rather large guy walks past. Now, there's a crowd of people there, it gets rush out, peak hour at Stanmore Station, and this big guy walks past. And Susanna, who doesn't have a kind of a, a sort of watch out, doesn't have a quiet voice, she says, Daddy! Why is that man so fat? <laughs> I'll tell you what, there weren't mouths I could call on the bean after that stage. The whole, the whole station, I think you know, was dead soul. <laughs> Just dead soul. Now, I'm scared, I really am. This is the kind of guy that's in my sense. Okay, he is a conversation killer. Let me tell you why. I'm going to tell a little bit from the Gospel of John. This is what we read about him in John chapter 20. One of the twelve, because Thomas is one of Jesus' original disciples, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples kept telling him, the same thing you didn't know that, kept telling him. You wouldn't believe it the first time. We have seen the Lord. You see, Thomas wasn't there. Okay, Thomas was fast asleep under his Star Wars dinner at his mum's house because he thought the whole game was up. Jesus had died and been buried, and so it was all over. And yet, his mates tell him, look, if you got up early, you know, before the package up, and joined us, you would have seen Jesus. They kept telling him, but he will not believe. And this is what he says. But he said to them, if I don't see the mark, of the nails in his hands, or put my finger in the mark of the nails, or put my hand into his side, I will never believe. I will never believe. See, Thomas is doing Thomas has drawn his evidential line on the sand. He said that if Jesus doesn't meet my criteria, I will never believe. And this is his criteria. He's gone kind of all CSI in the resurrection. He said... If Jesus turns up, I'm not going to just believe on sight. I'm going to get my finger and I want to see into the pus and the bone and the sinew of his hand. Out of my hand. Now I insert for the hole in this side. I'll have to have some intestine action, right? This is a conversation stopper in case you didn't know. I just imagine, you know, imagine if your grandma died and, and you told your mum. And she goes, actually, no, no, I'm not going to believe it until I can pull on the tongue of my fingers to see a ring of water sitting. It's just gross. And Thomas is this kind of gross conversation stuff. And I go, he doesn't get the inappropriateness of this statement, I think. He's just saying, I'm not going to believe. He alone, of all of Jesus' disciples, is hanging out for more information. But he's the crazy thing. The next time that the disciples, the followers of Jesus, are all together with him, he comes up to Thomas and he says, Do it. Do it. You want evidence. I've got evidence for you. 
initiative, the standardship continues. The very, very first recorded proclamations of Jesus' resurrection in the book of Acts refer to proofs or demonstrations. For example, the book of Acts claims in Acts verse 1 that after Jesus had suffered, he presented himself alive to his followers by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days. Uh, Paul is described in his mission work as, in Acts verse 18, rigorously, rigorously refuting the Jews in public, demonstrating from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, whether you think that the claim of Jesus rising from the dead is true or not, what you understand it is that it's a claim which is a call for you to think. It's a call for you to come and exercise your brain and investigate the evidence. Not just to accept, but to think. Now, by the way, it's helpful, I think, to say, to know that the Bible actually never tends to scientific evidence. This is a confusion that uh, some people make. Uh, I think particularly when they haven't been exposed to the methods of science often, or they don't understand the methods of history and the different kinds of proofs which are involved in each of the disciplines. You see, history is an investigative method in its own right. If we're kind of skeptical about history, I see as Lewis once remarked that we have a greater confidence in the existence of Neanderthals than in uh, Julius Caesar, because Neanderthals are the object of science, whereas Julius Caesar is just the object of history. But they're quite different things, because science is actually a method which requires repeatability, whereas history concerns itself particularly with things which happened only once, and you can't put them to test you. However, it's worth saying this up front. This does not make non-scientific proof less important. Now I say this because almost everything that you believe, you believe because of reasons other than scientific proof. Let me give you an example. Who here has ever had a bath while cooking toast in the bath with you? Anyone? Has anyone ever... Because it seems to me that this would be a really convenient way to start the day in winter. You're in the bath, and you've got the toast going, and your little table, and you can just butter the toast, and keep going. Why don't you do it? Someone help me out here. Why don't you cook toast with you in the mouth? I don't know if the fact that humidity might make the toast soggy. Why don't you do it? Well, and you have a science student. Fantastic. You get electrocuted. You get electrocuted. How do you know that? How do you know that? How do you know that you'll be electrocuted? Sorry? Sorry? Start to figure it out. There's something I've done. Okay. Who else has done this? Okay. I believe him. I believe him. I'm not going to go up and stick my finger in a toaster. Why? Well, because I, I believe him. I, I've watched Bound by Day. Okay. I've seen what women want. I think you don't mix electrical appliances with water. Now, how do I, I don't know this scientifically. Okay, I haven't, for example, gone and tested this. I have a family of five, three kids, right? I have actually quite a lot of subjects for genuine science experiments. <laughs> <laughs> I can test, I can write a control sample on three kids. Drop, zap, drop, zap, drop, zap. You know what? I won't have a bath my toaster. <laughs> there's a reason. And there's a reason you're here with us today and under care, not locked up. It's because you don't know the scientific science because uh, you've been told. You know this because you 
are making a very significant life decision on something other than scientific evidence. And it's important to understand that evidence that's non-scientific is actually kind of significant and most of our choices are based on non-scientific reasons. For example, um, <coughs> when my wife says she loves me, and, and believe it or not, she does that every now and again, it's kind of exciting. <laughs> um, when my wife says she loves me, you know what I don't do? I don't go and borrow my mate's lines and kind of stick them in eight identical rooms and present each of them with an identical bunch of flowers just to check to make sure under the same control situations that otherwise would not respond exactly the same way. That's kind of sick. We actually believe stuff based on a whole range of evidence and data, and we would like to come like that. Um, yeah. Some people managed to escape the global financial crisis. You know, they, they saw what was happening in the market, they pulled their money out. Not as a scientific reason, but because they saw it and they heard it from around the world, they heard reports. They were told by reliable sources. Now, I guess the Christian claim is that the Bible is a reliable source. It's a good reason to believe. And one which we invite you to investigate critically, to bring your mind to bear it. I think it stands quite well uh, to critical investigation. I'm going to leave that up to you. I'm not going to do that for today. Um, I, I encourage you to go and buy a good history of the first century. Uh, which deals with something. I know lots of Christian apologetical chapters, and I'm bad to read it. Uh, go for something like N.T. Wright, The Resurrection of the Saint, a really serious home, so you can actually say that you know, with some credibility if you actually investigated it for yourself. Uh, now, my personal story is that I was an atheist, and I sort of set out in order to prove to my friends that the evidence, both from the Bible and extra biblical sources, for Jesus and his life and so on was unreliable. And much to my dismay, along the way, I was persuaded and became a Christian. That was an awkward outcome for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but let me invite you. Hear that the claim to resurrection is first of all a call to think. It's a call to reflect. You see, so often there was this false dichotomy established. There was this dichotomy between science and faith. So some people say, no, I know by science, you know by faith, or we can be blind by faith. Now, unfortunately, what's happening here is a category error, which I just want to point out to you because I think it's difficult to understand. Science is a method by which we come to know things. It's what we call epistemological, right? If you've been used to it before, let's go over and ask one of your ask students, mates, this might be later on. It's epistemological. So that's about how we come to know. Faith, by the way, is not epistemological. It's ethical. Faith is about how we respond to what we come to know. That is, you can respond in faith to something which you have come to believe in because of science, or because someone has told you, or because of personal observation. Faith is what you do with what you know. It's not a means of knowing. So it's important that we don't set up science versus faith because they're actually a category error. Before anyone in the biblical accounts are called to have faith, they are challenged with the evidence. They are called to think. So the first thing we need to hear about the resurrection is, that it is a call to think, to investigate, to validate. 
I have two shorter points now. And the first one is this. Secondly, if the Christian claim to resurrection is true, then it's not just a call to think, it's like more than that. You see, the resurrection is actually a validation of the physical world. I'll explain that in a moment. But let me start a little bit further. And because it is a validation of the physical world, it means that the Christian message is not just a call to think, but also a reason to believe that thinking, particularly about the world that we live in, is actually worth doing. It's worth doing. Science, art, and so on is worth doing. I'll explain. A little bit later in the same chapter we'll be looking at, this is what Paul says. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, first fruits is a funny word, but I use it very often. It's the idea of the first part of the harvest. It's a bit that comes off the time. Who's had like the, the first stunning fruit of summer? Ah, uh, they like, And you pay like this last piece, right? But it's so worth it. And that juice runs down your chin, and as people look along with you enviously, like that first fruit. But it's a beautiful thing that the first fruit is when those first pictures come. You know there's more. There's a whole season of real fruit, not crappy fruit like apple and pears. <laughs> <laughs> real fruit culminating in, in the pinnacle of all fruit done, man. <laughs> you know that's what I was talking about, the first fruits of summer come. Well, the Bible says that Jesus is the first fruits from among the dead. Jesus' death is just, and resurrection, I should say, is just the beginning. Jesus taught also in line with the expectations of the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, that his coming was to save a whole people from death, to enable them to chart that same course with him down to the grave, but then back up again to eternal life, raised to life, just like he was. And Jesus said himself in John 6, verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, what does this mean? Well, what it means is there's actually a little bit of pop theology that we need to address, which is kind of common. You see, most people, and actually great many Christians, I guess, say too, most people think that the place that Jesus is going to save Christians to is heaven. You know heaven. Uh, there's the clouds and angels and people wear these long, white, Nineties. It's a problem for me. It's one of the round ones and black. You're swimming, right? Moving um, <laughs> on the head and all day with the big red That's kind of this hot vision of where people who follow Jesus are going. And frankly, I just when I look at that picture, I want to end it all. I feel there'll be a cream cheese, okay? It is really is the low cream cheese. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is the it is the only thing which makes lactose intolerance worth living. Can I say that this is not the message of the Bible? Right? <laughs> Jesus is not resurrected like this. He's raised thoroughly physically. Remember the Thomas story, right? The Gospel record that Jesus is right there and he can eat. And he can be, be touched. And the vision that he proclaims is that that's what we will be like, and that's what the world will be like. Heaven has become this kind of shorthand, which unfortunately doesn't represent the wonderful promise of the Bible of a new creation, 
our restoration, our renovation, our fixing of the way things are, but making them not something completely different, but just something better. An improvement. I take it, for example, that there will be perfect point breaks on which one day I will learn to serve, not crash and burn. Then new creation. It will be thoroughly physical. And what this means is that Jesus' message of resurrection is not about escape from this world into something abstract and ephemeral and ethereal. That's not the Christian vision. That's not the vision of resurrection. When Jesus rose from the dead, God did not just signal that he was going to save everything, but he was also going to restore, to validate everything. Because God will not simply trash it all and start again. And that makes thinking worth doing. See, in the 1960s, I don't know if you know, you should go and read sociological textbooks from the 1960s, it's quite fun. Because there was a, a widespread expectation in the 1960s that religion was going to die out entirely. That it was on its way out and only a matter of a decade or so when religion would have vanished entirely from the Western world and also from places like China. Now, this these make good sitcoms now. Uh, uh, a book was recently published by the editor in chief of the Economist, titled simply, God is Back. And that's significant because it means that the writing of all those sociologists has just become a waste of time. Because of the trend about which they wrote about it, it's just vanished in a puff of smoke, so also has the value of their work. The same will not be said of scientists and artists who study, who portray this physical world. Because it will not simply vanish in a puff of smoke. Because in the resurrection, God signals that he loves reality and he will fix it rather than abandon it. That gives us reason to think. Science is something I take that we shall continue to become to the glory of God long after Jesus Christ returns. And that's the second message about the resurrection. Here's the third thing. Finally, the resurrection of Jesus means that there is actually a basis for believing that thinking does something at all. The resurrection of Jesus means that there is a basis for believing that thinking does anything at all. Let me explain a little bit about um, I have about many atheist friends, and uh, atheism is not a whole worldview, but that is normally characterised uh, by two corollaries. One of these is something called metaphysical materialism, okay, metaphysical materialism, the other one is called ethical voluntarism. Uh, now, metaphysical materialism is a belief that there is really nothing apart from the observable and the physical. Okay? Ethical voluntarism is the idea that you can't free to work out, to choose freely what you think is right and good all by yourself. And I've got to say that by and large, uh, most of the atheists I mean are thoroughly good people. They do this latter bit pretty well. Now, I want to commend them for that. And if you're an atheist, I agree with that. However, there is a problem with holding these two beliefs, uh, which is that they're actually contradictory. They're actually contradictory. You see, metaphysical materialism implies the world is actually a, a closed system, which means there are only really two sets of influences. Uh, one of them is cause and effect. Um, I'm a really bad 
full part, third part. It's, it's not really a gun here. You know, you stick your hand on the ground. I admire people who just slide away those balls. But it, it, it's quite phenomenal with the gift. Uh, it could be from the park line. But Billings is a great example of a metaphysically materialistic world. In one sense, it, it trace one half picture that the world's all about cause and effect. But uh, this ball ends up in the pocket because it was hit by another ball, which was hit by another ball, which was hit by, and you can trace it back. Uh, that's one part of the influences in a metaphysically materialist worldview. The other one is chaos. It's, it's quantum theory. Oh, I love quantum theory. Quantum theory is really cool. Uh, it, it just suggests that underlying all of fabric is kind of chaos. And I have three children. I have lots of evidence for this. Um, <laughs> but because of these two influences, that total determinism, right, cause and effect, and then chaos, there's actually no room within a metaphysical materialist viewpoint for free agency. There's no room for a kind of critical rationality where you're able to step out of the system and observe it apart from just being one more reacting part of that system yourself. Stick with me this time. This is quite significant. You see, everything you think in a metaphysically materialist world, everything you think is either just a product of random chance or causal effect. It either be traced back to a millisecond ago, completely randomly, or 13 and a half billion years ago due to complete determinism. There's no room for you to actually be a free agent critically evaluating the universe in which you live. Now this is where I want to change gears a little bit on you. You see, while I've been making the point that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is really wonderfully physical so far, it's about validating the physical world, I want to suggest that it's not bound up in the same particular problem of the materialistic worldview. And because I've been speaking so much about the physical world, this may seem to come out of nowhere. But here is what the resurrection does. It shows that there is actually something more than merely physical. And for lack of a better word, we call it spiritual. There's something beyond mere physical determinism and randomness, which underlies or lies alongside this world and this reality. And there is power and personality somehow in this spiritual teaching, but this is actually widely believed in Sydney. Uh, 54% of people in Australia, for example, believe that Jesus rose from the dead. 43% of people who do not call themselves born-again Christians believe that Jesus rose from the dead. We have a widespread belief that there is something lying behind the physical reality which is significant. And what this spirit gives us then is it gives us genuine agency. It means we are not simply bound to physical laws, but we're able to exercise a free critical rationality. Now, we're able to think in a way which is not just reaction, which is not just predetermined or a product of chaos. And what this means is that it brings genuine agency to you. You can choose. You can choose whether or not you want to investigate these claims here further. If you believe in a metaphysically materialistic worldview, then you actually don't believe you have any freedom to evaluate this information further. Or you really shouldn't anyway. Whereas if you believe in spirit, something beyond the merely physical that the resurrection of Jesus Christ points to, that means you're 
not just the product of a billion random or highly predictable atomic interactions. I think deep down we'll believe that. We believe we can have the ability to exercise some kind of freedom in thinking. And the resurrection means that we can believe that genuine thinking is possible. So we divorce. My time is about others. I'll summarise. The biblical claims of the resurrection, which I don't provide a claim to prove in Tuesday. Uh, the biblical claim of the resurrection does three things. Uh, firstly, it calls us to think. It calls us to a critical reflectiveness, to evaluate, to investigate. Secondly, the resurrection gives people a reason to think in a world which won't just vanish and not this one. It won't just die or collapse in the heat that the universe. It is something which God plans to go on and on and on. And therefore there will be a validity to ongoing physical reflection because of the ongoing validity of the universe. And thirdly, it gives us a reason to think that thinking is actually possible. That it can take place with real, genuine, free agency. So here's what I'd like to invite you to do. I want to invite you not to, not to be afraid that you need to lose your mind in order to save your soul. I want to invite you to think. I want to invite you to think uh, with the members of the EU, the Christians on campus here today. Uh, there's some information here about the think sessions which you received in your handout on the way in. And what I'd like to encourage you to do is if you're interested in being part of these critical, reflective sessions, just write down think somewhere on your feedback form and make sure it gets to someone before you leave today. That's all I'm going to say. I'm going to actually pray for us briefly. And then I'm going to uh, invite questions and we'll get through as many as we can. Okay? Uh, if you'd like to join with me, please do so. Uh, if you're just not so keen on this whole great thing, maybe, you know, just get your paper for a while from you saying a little bit. Dear Father, we thank you so much that you do give us this claim that Jesus has made, that he rose from the dead. Thank you for the evidence for this claim. You realize that you don't call us just to accept, but to think. And I pray for everyone here today that without duress or pressure, they might be able to thoughtfully consider this evidence and make a decision for themselves. Free from the pressures of this world. Free to think. And I pray these things for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Okay, I have another question. Uh, if God is true, why hasn't he made himself evident through scientific study, not just historical study? If God is true, yeah, yeah, if God is true, why hasn't he made himself I've got to say, on one level, this is a question which I, I have asked myself totally for a long time. Um, why didn't, you know, for example, why didn't at the most base level, like, you kind of inscribe a little picture of a bearded Jesus on Adam or something like that. That would be cool and it would somehow point to something big, right? I, I understand why we want to ask this. Um, I'll say a couple of things here. Um, uh, firstly, uh, it's worth keeping in mind that as far as the Bible speaks to this topic, God seems to believe that he's given us all the evidence we need. Now, Thomas gets to ask special questions. And the part of me wants to go, how come Thomas got to ask to stick his hand aside and I don't? And the answer is, I don't. God appears because I've given enough, I've given a, a real, 
Please do that in my son. There's something more about that. I can't do that. That's not going to work. There's something more about this. The evidence of Jesus, that God has given us in His Son, Jesus Christ, is not a historical crusade, and it's not kind of timeless. A scientific crusade, inherently repeatable, is a timeless crusade. It exists throughout history without a pointer to any specific event or occasion. And I get that, I mean, we'd love that to happen. But God hasn't chosen to do this. What He has chosen to do is to be like historically located. This information in Jesus. Why has he chosen to tell us? Well, because, uh, again, the, the Gospels point back that something needed to be done. There's something historical which needed to happen in the world, not just a historical. There was something of such a magnitude that had to happen that required an intervention <laughs> of God in history. As the Bible talks about our need, our brokenness, our sinfulness, if you will, and the need for us to be forgiven, that something be done. And so the event which points to God is a historical event, which I take it somehow communicates more and in a more significant way than an ahistorical point to God. Because it points not only to the genuine and general existence of God, but to a particular personal interaction of God in history. Because ahistorical things are impersonal, whereas his, the personal interaction you require historicity. You require a conversation and interaction which must always be time-bound. That's a way of shooting out a whole bunch of the answers to that question possible. But the answer is, God, we needed God to intervene historically because of the shape of our particular needs. And he did so personally because he's a person. And he chose that in the point of history and he seems to believe that that's enough for us. And there's no more answer I can give you. Alright, we'll move on then. So Jesus says, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So is there a point where time space is better than um, rationalism? Yeah, so this is Jesus' interaction with Thomas in John chapter 20, where uh, he, where Thomas goes, Ah, I believe! Right? And I think this is a real similar moment for him um, as he stands with his hand in Jesus' side. Hey, <laughs> I don't think there's a great little commendation from him at this point from Jesus. Yeah, he says, it's great that you believe, Thomas. You have my, your hand in my side. Please, get your finger out of my socket, right? <laughs> There's no particular commendation we found in Thomas' belief that because he has Jesus standing right in front of him. At this point, Jesus says, look, there, there we go. Because although this is a historical event in coming, it will have eternal ramifications that people throughout history will hear this message of Jesus. Jesus says, blessed are those who will hear based on not, not seeing me face to face, but on this message. And this is what we find in the Gospel and in the Book of Acts. We find this ongoing proclamation without sight and people believing because they hear rather than they see. And I think Jesus is giving a particular commendation to those of us who critically, reflectively hear that message, we think about it, and then we decide to put our trust in that. We might have to stack questions down in the front here. You don't ask me a follow-up on it, but it's like a secret floor of this. No, no, if you go with this person, then come back to that. Yes. Okay, so can't other, other religions be explained by critical rationalism? Ah, thank you. Can't other religions be explained? Uh, as far as I'm aware, I, I don't, I'm not an expert in other religions. I must say that's very clearly. I'm not even an expert in Christianity. Uh, Jesus is the only expert in Christianity that I really like to point you to. 
However, it's interesting that the shape of the resurrection points to something unique about Christianity. Uh, the combination of a robust historicity and an affirmation of the physical, and also I pointed to a thoroughly spiritual worldview on this one. So, for example, um, uh, I grew up in Malaysia where uh, Buddhism and Hinduism were extremely popular. And Buddhism and Hinduism do not actually point to those kind of historical concrete events. Uh, they don't claim, for example, in Hinduism that Bhagavad Gita are recording events in the same, which are historical in the same way that the Gospels claim. And this isn't a critical, uh, this isn't a criticism of Hinduism, it's just an observation. Um, and I think my Hindu, Hindu friends would have to sound. Same for Islam, for example. Uh, what does Islam claim? Islam claimed that Muhammad had a series of dreams, revelation to one person over a series of dreams, then told by the people. Now, the problem is we don't have any way of validating that. Whereas Christianity, Christianity alone points to this event, which was historical in scope and visible to a whole bunch of people at a certain point and accessible through the historically critical kind of method of standard historiography. Yeah. Okay. Um this is a really big deal, so maybe you can give it a small one. Yeah, one. <laughs> uh, so how, how can evolution fit into Christianity? Uh, that's a great question. How can evolution fit into Christianity? I have to say, by the way, uh, I'm not called, uh, when anyone bothers to call us anything at all, a theistic evolutionist. Uh, so I believe that evolution fits really well into Christianity. Uh, now, there, there's a, a whole complex discussion around this. Uh, one of the things I think is we need to get an understanding of how years go around uh, and it's quite possible is that uh, there are Christians who believe in evolution and there are Christians who don't believe in evolution. And it's largely a scientific question. Uh, there is a theological underpinnings to this, uh, generally having read the first chapter, 11 chapters of Genesis. But one of the funny things about this is people often, I think, are hard with this. You've got to be sensitive to textiles. So, uh, one of my favourite poems is, is Sylvia Plath's Ariel. Okay, go and read it sometime. It's fantastic. You guys, write it and put the love letter if you want. Yeah, so, it's just because, you know, it's, 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 it's a seriously poetic poem and it'll make you sound like you're not in touch with the essential design. Uh, <laughs> you can try to read it as a, uh, as a serious uh, historical recollection <coughs> of riding a horse then you're going to have real problems. But uh, no one tries to force that on the poem because it, in its very structure and nature, testifies to something about the fact that it's a poem. Now, I think Genesis 1 11 does this very well. It, in a number of ways, it testifies to the fact that it's about something more than just the same kind of basic historiography that we are used to. Uh, in, for example, our account of World War II. There's something more going on. For example, in fact, the Genesis 1 and 2 laid alongside make explicitly different claims to order. Now, you might go, aha, this is a proof that the Bible is wrong. In which case, I think you're falling into a classic modernist arrogance, thinking that we're the first people ever to read. You don't think the Jews who wrote Genesis 1 2, you know, looked back over what they wrote and went, ah, whoops, we got the order wrong. <laughs> we got 2,000 years before the Industrial Revolution. Let's fix it quickly so no one notices. Now, they don't do that. And so I think there's some signal in that to us that there are ways in which we can read it in a really more sensitive, wonderful way, sensitive to what the, uh, the text itself is trying to accomplish. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to 
That's a long answer. Right? So only within the scratching surface of the moment of evolution, I think, fits very well with Christianity. That's yet another way of thinking about the wonderful creativity of God. Okay, well, we've got quite a few more questions. We might just do one. Sure. One more. Um, but I do remind you again about the key sessions that are happening in the next two weeks. And I'll stay down here afterwards, too. And I can stay down here afterwards. <laughs> There is an assumption, I think, that children are somehow blanket slaves. And that uh, in certain areas of the new atheism, uh, to teach children about religion is a form of child abuse. Now, I was like, oh, I feel a lot of that tomorrow. Okay, we've got to be really careful about how we teach children. And we've also got to be particularly careful about uh, not indoctrinating children with anything. Well, let me tell you something about kids, for those of you who don't have kids. Kids are always going to worship something. Kids are always going to worship something. Human beings have a natural theological orientation. We always think that something is important in our life and belongs to the centre of it. And so we worship something. Small children might be, it might be things. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen children not share, right? But we're talking about World War Three in the making. Okay, little kids, okay, they have a very, very strong sense of their own political boundaries <laughs> and possessions. And they believe very strongly in the eternal and inherent value of those things. Uh, so children are not a blank slate in their mind. They will pick up things from the world. And it kind of says that it's no less a theological position to teach kids that there is no God unless proven otherwise. And just teach them that there is a God unless proven otherwise. But please follow that with me later on. I'm going to stay down the front here. I'd love to talk with you further. Um, and maybe if some of these discussions need to be broader and expanded before you want to have a discussion for some of them. But thanks for being here.